I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part two in the 2019 Vision Series. All of us are becoming someone else along the winding road of life. We are being formed. Following Jesus is a means of deliberate counterformation, a means by which we are shaped less by our surroundings and circumstances and more by God himself into the image of Jesus. I, I know a liar, and the liar uh, looks like me. For about five years now, I've been learning a lot about this insidious liar. I have tracked his movements, I've studied his words, and I have, quite frankly, hated him for most of my life, actually, as long as I can remember. I have hated him. I have hated nothing in all my life the way I have hated this liar, I have loathed him with such wild, fiery intensity that I have wanted to do him harm, and often I did. The world does not know this liar the way I know him. He's not invisible, not an imaginary friend. Many of you have met him. Some of you know him well. This liar has followed me, sat on my shoulder, a vile parrot, and whispered, In my ears, he's grown to mammoth proportions, bigger than me, and operated me like a marionette. But to everyone who has ever seen this liar, he looks just like me. But it isn't me. It's a false me, an imposter, a liar, the false self. Each and every one of you, just like me, have a lying doppelganger, whether you know them or not. It's not an idea I made up. The New Testament calls this liar the old self. Writers and theologians have called it things like the shadow side and, as I have, the false self. Brennan Manning calls it the imposter, writing this, Imposters are preoccupied with acceptance and approval. They overextend themselves in people, projects, and causes, motivated not by personal commitment, but by the fear of not living up to others' expectations. The false self was born when, as children, we were not loved well or were rejected or abandoned. The false self buys into outside experiences to furnish a personal source of meaning, the pursuit of money, power, glamour, sexual prowess, recognition. The imposter is what they do. The imposter prompts us to attach importance to that which has no importance, clothing with a false glitter what is least substantial and turning us away from what is real. The false self causes us to live in a world of delusion. The imposter is a liar. Within each and every one of us is another person, a shadowy, misshapen imitation that masquerades as the real you. But this imposter is insecure. It lives and dies on the approval of people, people, or it's fretful and obsessive about money and things. It wants to be beautiful but despairs that it really isn't. It puts on a show for others or it cowers in a corner, terrified of others. The imposter wants to distract the real you with TV shows and Instagram feeds and booze and porn and worse because the imposter can't sit still. This imposter gossips because it believes tearing other people down will build itself up. It refuses to embrace generosity because the imposter believes it is entitled to its own stuff. The imposter is over busy because it's afraid to slow down, or it's lazy and listless because it is afraid to get up. 
Problem is, God made each and every one of you, and God did not design you to be any of those things. So with that in mind, let's read from Romans 7, beginning with verse 15. In it, Paul writes this, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. For I know that good itself will not or does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then... I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Romans is a letter, as many of you know, written by one master apprentice of Jesus called Paul. And here he is, a man at war with himself, torn between a very real, very authentic desire to do good and the experiential reality of doing evil. Now, scholars debate whether Paul is kind of narrating as his redeemed self or if he's talking about his experience prior to Jesus. But really, either way, he's describing something common to the human experience, a war between two selves, the battle against the false self. One writer who has been influential to our practices here at Van City is a gentleman named Pete Scazzaro. He wrote a book called The Emotionally Health or Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, and in it he defines the false self this way. The false self is the accumulation of untamed emotions, less than pure motives and thoughts that, while largely unconscious, strongly influence and shape your behaviors. It is the damaged but mostly hidden version of who you are. Theologian and monk Thomas Merton said this of his false self, this is the man I want myself to be, but who cannot exist because God does not know anything about him. And to be unknown of God is altogether too much privacy. My false self is the one who wants to exist outside the reach of God's will and God's love, outside of reality and outside of life. And such a self cannot help but be an illusion. We are not very good at recognizing illusions, least of all the ones we cherish about ourselves, the ones we were born with and which feed the roots of sin. For most people in the world, there is no greater subjective reality than this false self of theirs, which cannot exist. A life devoted to the cult of this shadow is what is called a life of sin. So all of spiritual formation, Merton went on to argue, is a series of deaths to the false self. Uh, last week we began our annual vision series here at Vancity Church, which is kind of a time to 
regroup and remind one another why we're here and where we're going and why and what's in store for the year to come. We are practicing the way of Jesus, a journey of bringing the imposter to light in order to expose them as a fraud. Some of you know the imposter well. Some of you have no idea how to pinpoint the thinking and behavior of the false self. And when the imposter acts, you, by default, defend them. When I was about eight or nine years old, I was walking with a friend of mine to a local convenience store called Quickway. This is in southeast Georgia. We had a a few dimes and nickels between the two of us, and we had in mind to purchase and split a candy bar. It's a big thing for our afternoon. We go in, uh, agree on a whatchamacallit, which is a great candy bar. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) Whatchamacallit, yeah. Um, We buy it. We come outside, and my friend, we we expended all the funds on the whatchamacallit, by the way, and we come outside, my friend reaches into his pocket and draws out two individually wrapped sticks of the penny gum, and uh, one for me, one for him. We did not purchase these. I was terrified. I said, you stole the penny gum, and he shrugged. He's like, what's a couple of pennies anyway? You know, an upright Southern Baptist I was, my mind reeled at the sinfulness of it, and my friend said, man... They are never going to sell all this gum. He was probably right. It was in a huge bin. And he said, the longer it sits, the more it hardens. This is his logic. He said, someone buys a stick of hard gum. Maybe they don't want to come back to this store. And so I was doing them a favor. (laughs) And I said, I remember specifically, I said, you broke one of the Ten Commandments. (laughs) And he said, really, I helped a commandment. That was his logic. So to this day... (laughs) My friend and I use this phrase, I helped a commandment, as an inside joke to justify bad behavior. But more often than not, (laughs) we do this without knowing what we're doing. The false self is an expert in justifying its own existence. And the problem is the world around you is organized in such a way that it feeds the false self. We call this unintentional spiritual formation. Now, this is not something I made up. It's confirmed by anthropologists and sociologists, psychologists who have written at length about the way that we are shaped as people. It's happening to every single one of us, regardless of what you believe or do not believe about Jesus. We are all being formed by a series of different factors. And it starts with the stories that we believe. If you look at the top of the paradigm there, we all have stories by which we live. Screenwriter Babette Buster calls human beings narrative animals. So sexuality is a great example of what I mean by this. If you believe, for example, in uh, evolutionary biology as an ultimate worldview, meaning evolution apart from any involvement from a creator God, all of life as a kind of incredible accident, then monogamy, it logically follows, is a simple social construct. Sex is nothing more than a temporary biological coupling for procreation and or release. So romantic. And if you believe this story, it will have a massive effect on how you carry and consider and express your sexuality, the decisions that you make, the way that you understand the decisions other people make. There are also subconscious stories that we've grown to believe over time, things like, I have to be perfect in order to be loved, or I only have value when I am being celebrated by other people, things like that. We're formed by the stories that we believe. Secondly, we're all being formed over time by our habits. A tremendous amount of writing and research has been done over the last few decades in the field of psychology on the power of habit. And what all that exhaustive research is getting at is the idea that when you do something over and over again, it does something to you. 
what we do on a regular basis is what we become. Habits get to the core of our being because they shape the things that we love and the things that we long for. So think about it this way. You can become decently acquainted with a person without learning what they believe at a deep soul level about God and right and wrong and the story of the universe. But chances are you get decently acquainted with a person, you'll learn about their vocation or if they're into CrossFit or something or like diet fads or what kind of music they prefer, where they shop. Habits reveal your real loves and longings. And if you bring to mind your habits, for better or for worse, whether it's coffee or smartphones, social media, TV, running, dining out, going to the movies, gossip, naps, whatever it might be, chances are you didn't take up those habits, nor do you persist in them because you attended a helpful lecture about coffee or because you read a book about Facebook and decided, yes, I think I will implement this in my life. Based on your wiring and disposition and season of life and some other stuff, you started running every morning or drinking lots of coffee or scrolling through an Instagram feed all the time. And the more you did it, the more you kept doing it. And good or bad, that repetition is forming you, shaping the person that you become. Could be good, you know, a person prone to exercise and more healthy because of it. Could be sort of neutral, a person who always has a cup of coffee in the morning. Um, Abby and I drink a lot of coffee. Some might describe us as enthusiasts or aficionados, sounds fancy. Others would use the less glamorous term addicts. Um, Just this last week, I was in my office, I was working on this teaching, and Abby calls me on the phone. Oh, this is exciting, phone call from Abby. And she says, I'm stopping by. My heart fluttered at the mention of this. An unexpected visit from my wife, so nice. And she goes on, I need more coffee, we're out of beans, so I'm coming to take some of yours. Well, (laughs) that's not exactly what I expected, but it's a visit nonetheless. I'm deeply relational. So I say, fine, let me know when you're here and I'll come let you into the building. And she says, I have to come inside? (laughs) The heck, I've said. I said, what what is this, Sonic? I'm going to bring the coffee to you. So... To be fair, at the time of the conversation, I was on, I kid you not, I counted this up, my sixth cup, it was 11 a.m., and uh, I'll stop. (laughs) (laughs) I would drink a further two before I left the office. So I have ADD, uh, so coffee is a stimulant, works counterintuitively on my brain, gives me focus while I'm hard at work on this teaching. So if you really think about it, I did it for you. I helped a commandment. (laughs) And if you hate this teaching, blame my habits. Habits. They're like stories. They can be good things or neutral things or bad things. So read the screen time report on your phone if you have an iPhone that pushes it to you on Sunday or whenever. If that thing is more than about a half hour a day, I guarantee you that the people in your life, your friends, your children especially, notice how often you are on your phone, how often you reach for it, how much of your attention you give it. You might not even think of yourself as a person who loves your phone or who loves coffee per se, but the things to which we dedicate our time and energy and attention, those are the things we love. You may think of yourself as someone who loves to encourage other people or something good like that, but do you make a habit of, on a regular basis, saying and doing the kinds of things that lift other people up? To quote Jesus, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our habits shape what we love, for better or for worse. So we're being shaped by the stories we believe and the habits we indulge. And thirdly, we're being shaped by our relationships, Most of us become like the people we spend time with the more we spend time with them. I realize this varies from person to person, but 
regardless of how strong-willed you imagine yourself to be, given enough time and enough proximity, you will absorb some of the people with whom you spend all your time. You pick up on catchphrases or you adapt to certain types of humor. If your friends are me, you'll probably end up going to the movies more often or something like that. My friends should be so lucky. The, the Apostle Paul argued that bad company corrupts good morals, meaning if you spend time with corrupt people, your own value system can itself become corrupted. We're shaped by our relationships. And fourthly, all of this is taking place in an environment that is also shaping us. For most of us, that's Vancouver or the Portland metro area, which is something of a formation machine itself. Influential culture is being crafted in a nearby urban core, and it permeates not just the metro area, but slowly shaping an entire region of the Pacific Northwest and the world. And there are the smaller environments in which we carry out the routine of our everyday lives, maybe the urban routine of life in downtown Vancouver or in the city of Portland or the more er, suburban and rural, er, rural areas of East Vancouver or Woodland or Longview, wherever it might be, even the microcultures of our homes and our families and our friend groups. And the umbrella over all of this is the unstoppable futurist, futuristic machine of globalization. Because of uh, the digital age, your smartphones, social media, etc., the world is getting smaller and sadly less creative every day, which is why the hip people in Brooklyn look just like the hip people in Portland, and the coffee shop down the street has the exact same aesthetics as the one in the next city, in the next state, and even the next country. I remember um, this coffee shop opening in, I don't want to name them because it sounds like I'm making fun of them, but there's a coffee shop open in Portland, one among, it has to be hundreds at this point, and uh, the sign was in colors. It was like each letter of the sign, the, the branding was a color, and the rest of it was exactly the same. You know, it's white, industrial, exposed, and it looks exactly the same, wood, you know, and everyone was just doting and fawning over, oh my God, the colors, this place is the best, so new, busting in the door. It's like, it's the same thing, it's just a little bit colorful. Wow, that's all it takes to be creative. Anyway, so <laughs> we're shaped by our environments. You get used to a kind of thing, it shapes your expectations and forms who you are over time. The stories we believe, together with our habits and relationships, all within the environments in which we live, have this kind of synergist, synergistic energy to conspire and collaborate in shaping us into a certain type of person over time. All of this happens over time. Think back to the person you were 10 or 15 years ago. Think about the things that mattered most to you, the things that you did with all your time 10 or 15 years ago. Chances are you're bringing to mind what is, in many ways, a very different person. I was doing this exercise as I wrote this, and I was thinking, man, just eight or nine years ago, I remember a couple of weeks where I became briefly overcome with the notion of constructing a perfect replica of Kermit the Frog for some reason. So it's a true story. I went with Abby to Joanne's. I had her on the sewing machine for me, standing over like, oh, can you do it like this? She was like, what are we doing? You know, I was cutting ping pong balls in half with an X-Acto knife. And I'd forgotten all about this until a few nights ago, a friend of mine <laughs> reminded me of this. Remember when you had to make that Kermit the Frog? And then someone who didn't know the story was like, what, why? Why, someone in the group said, why did you do this? Why did you dedicate, how long did that take? And, and why did you dedicate so much of your time and gave money? You paid for that? Why did you give money to this? To which I could only reply, I, was help, I helped a commandment. Now, <laughs> today, I, I think of that and I'm like, I can't fit all the very worthwhile and actually sensible things that I want to do into my calendar, let alone spend a couple of weeks on a project with no point whatsoever. 
but that was me some nine years ago. It seemed really important. Point is, you're changing over time whether you like it or not. And across the span of that time, good and bad stuff happens to you and has an effect on you. If you get divorced or have a child or endure a serious illness or start a serious relationship, end another one, make a lot of money, lose a lot of money, whatever it is, it shapes you. And that's exactly my point. All of this has an effect on us. It changes us and it's inevitable. This is happening whether you want it to or not. You don't get to pick whether or not you live in an environment. You just do. You don't get to pick whether or not time passes or whether or not stuff happens to you. It will. You don't get to control the behavior of the people with whom you are in relationship, much as some of you would like to do. Even habits aren't just something that you pick up and put down on a whim. Like it or not, you are being formed. All of us are being formed spiritually. And though some of the things in this paradigm aren't really problematic one way or another, you don't need a therapist to tell you probably a ton of it is changing you and not for the better. Now, most of us do need a therapist, by the way, but not to tell us that. That's obvious enough. Much, if not most of the things in this paradigm are building up, embellishing, and empowering the false self. Now, if this is true, and if Merton is correct in his arguing that all of spiritual formation is a series of deaths to the false self, how exactly do we kill it? Some of us who have made laps in church culture have inherited misleading answers to this very question along the way. The first is, you know, just read the Bible. Done, some suggest. Make no mistake, knowing and studying the scriptures, meditating on them, obeying them, all of those things are crucial and necessary aspects of discipleship to Jesus. Just hang around Van City for more than a couple weeks, very big fans of the Bible. Thing is, how many of you know or have known people who read the Bible all the time, know what it says, and aren't at all like Jesus? Knowing something is not the same thing as doing something, which isn't even the same thing as wanting to do something. You cannot think your way to Christ-likeness. The way of Jesus is more than a set of ideas. It's a way of life. Another myth some of us were led to believe about our spiritual formation is that God would do it all for us. We don't do anything. Cease your striving. Sit back and wait for the holy lightning bolt from God to turn you into someone else. Let go and let God, as they say. How's that working out for anyone? <laughs> Transformation is a joint effort that unfolds in collaborative partnership with God. God has a part and you have a part. And yes, God will do all the heavy lifting, thankfully, but you have a role to play in that transaction. If that line of thinking makes you uncomfortable, think of the way Dallas Willard puts it. He said, grace isn't opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning now, sadly, we confuse the two things. All of this is free, but there is still effort in the journey of spiritual formation. We can't expose and destroy the false self by simply knowing the Bible or showing up to church or by waiting for God to do it, whether we participate or not. So what do we do? All spiritual formation for an apprentice of Jesus is counter-formation. We are working to offset the rest of our lives, the stories we believe, our relationships, and so on. And the first way we do this is through teaching. I realize that sounds like a commercial for me, but I don't do this because I think it's pointless. <laughs> teaching 
all sorts of teaching on its best day does more than simply delineate between right or wrong. The best teaching permeates your mind with a vision of what it means to have the life that is truly life in the language of Jesus. Teaching can undermine the stories that we've been believing for something truer and better. The best teaching celebrates the truth as beautiful and exposes the lies we believe for what they are, heinous and destructive. And this Bible teaching, theology, sermons, the Sunday gathering, reading books, all of this plays a vital role in our transformation. But getting the right ideas into our minds is only the beginning. It's an important part of the process, but only the beginning. Next comes practice. Jesus' famous collection of teachings, the thing we call the Sermon on the Mount, it begins and ends with the idea of practice. Whoever practices and teaches these commands of mine. Jesus presupposes that his radical way of life will require a lifetime of practice within the community of God's people. Willpower will only carry you so far. My therapist loves to say, willpower is great until it isn't. Ordinarily, if it's just your willpower versus an addiction, versus porn, versus anxiety, versus gossip, or what have you, willpower will eventually get bludgeoned to death. Ask a concert pianist if they just willed themselves into mastery of their instrument. Chances are, will was involved, absolutely, but it took practice, lots of practice. Practicing for the apprentice of Jesus works itself out in something we call the spiritual disciplines, which are a habit or practice based on the life of Jesus that over time makes it possible for us to do what we cannot currently do through direct effort. If we want to become the kind of people for whom the Sermon on the Mount is not only a possible way of living, but altogether doable, we have to practice. So most of, for most of us, anyway, simply saying, don't worry or don't lust is the same thing as pointing to a piano and telling my three-year-old da- daughter, Isla, play Mozart. It's not that she can't in perpetuity, like she can never under any circumstances play Mo- Mozart. It's that she can't yet. If she tried now, she would obviously fail. But if she practices daily for years and learns as she grows, she could become the type of person to master Mozart through practice. By daily daily practicing the way of Jesus over and over, day after day, year after year, the will is formed and becomes stronger. Our habits and loves will be rewired along the way. Our love for Jesus himself deepens. What's now impossible eventually becomes second nature. The third component of counterformation is community. What's the difference between relationships in the first paradigm, community in this one? Relationships... We often self-select based on preference or biological connection, family. Community, on the other hand, simply means the family of God around you in your life. Could be a group of peers and close friends, great. It could be the collection of folks with whom you went through the basics class and you don't know at all and, or didn't know before them. Could be the folks who live in your neighborhood or who belong to your church. Community is the context in which change actually takes place. Community is a well from which you draw support and encouragement, but it's also the place of accountability and confrontation. Other broken people who love you enough to call you to something better as you do the same thing for them. And rather than the inevitable formation of our environment, the city, the community, whatever it might be, the counterformation of teaching, practicing, and community unfolds via the empowering of the Holy Spirit. 
more than our subculture or a city or a home or the digital world. The Spirit of Jesus becomes our environment when we work to live in an ongoing awareness of and connectedness to Him. And in that constant state of connectedness to the Father, we're changed over time. All of this, again, happens over time, and it takes a very long time. I was rereading an author this week who wrote, the truth about significant soul transformation is this. Change is possible, but it is harder than we want and takes longer than we expect. It unfolds over a long period of time, and it happens through the hard knocks of life. Regardless of whether or not you apprentice Jesus, life is not easy. You all know this. But if you are a disciple of Jesus, the most difficult, tragic, painful things of life can become a catalyst for spiritual formation. Throughout the story of the scriptures, the authors make the point that often in the worst seasons of our lives, we grow and mature the most. Now, God, we believe, does not want or cause or plan the pain and the suffering, but He can use it to bring good out of evil if we let Him. But the culture in which you and I live is built to spare us any and all measure of pain and discomfort whenever possible. We live by life and liberty, pursuit of happiness, imagining that any hardship takes us away from our proper and entitled seat of ongoing uninterrupted bliss. We want shorter lines and faster deliveries and better meds and automated, automated, automated? automated payments, no inconveniences whatsoever. And because of this, many of us don't know how to confront suffering. We don't know how to face cancer or death or divorce or unemployment or abuse. And we blame God for what we presume to be a negligent deviation from our deserved life of happiness. And the best our culture can do is to distract us. Here's food or here's more stuff or here's travel or here's entertainment, here's information, here's pills. And there comes a point when it simply isn't enough. And it's the very times of pain from which we often run that stand to act as an agent of intense transformation in our journey to become like Jesus, which is a journey of counterformation, teaching, practice, community, and the Holy Spirit. It happens over time and through the pain and suffering of life. This is how we destroy the false self. Now notice none of that is simple or easy. It's a way of life that requires commitment and faithfulness, and vulnerability, and one another, this is why we have a church, to practice the way of Jesus and to destroy the false self. The false self, however, does not want you to do these things. Again, this from Manning, he writes, the false self specializes in treacherous disguise. He is the lazy part of self, resisting the effort, asceticism, and discipline that intimacy with God requires. He inspires rationalizations such as, my work is my prayer, I'm too busy. Prayer should be spontaneous, so I just pray when I'm moved by the Spirit. The false self's lame excuses allow us to maintain the status quo. Know this, there is an imposter within you, a shadow side, a false self, and this may come as a discouraging surprise, but realize that stuff in you, the fear or hate or anxiety or gossiping or self-loathing or self-absorption or lust or critical spirit or perfectionism or selfish ambition, in God's story, that is not the real you. There is a liar at work within your will. 
And when the liar shrinks back and recedes and withers, you are learning more and more to know the real you. Around the 12th century, the Dominican scholar St. Catherine of Siena said, when we are who we are called to be, we will set the world ablaze. Around that same time, German theologian Meister Eckert said, no one can know God who does not first know himself. And modern psychologist David Binner summarizes these ideas well, saying, Christian spirituality has a great deal to do with the self, not just with God. The goal of the spiritual journey is the transformation of self. This requires knowing both ourself and God. Both are necessary if we are to discover our true identity as those who are in Christ, because the self is where we meet God. Both are also necessary if we are to live out the uniqueness of our vocation. See, the false self isn't just a problem because through it you're anxious or hateful or carnal or whatever it might be. The false self is a problem because it obscures the real you, and the real you is the person being made alive in God. Simply having a shadow side isn't the only thing that will rob you of growth in and intimacy with God. It's not knowing your shadow side, not acknowledging it, not dealing with it. Let me read to you from Brenning Manning one more time. My therapist gave me this book uh, of his, Abba's Child, a few years ago. It's been one of the most formational books in my own story. In it, he writes this, We even refuse to be our true selves with God and then wonder why we lack intimacy with Him. The deepest desire of our hearts is for union with God. From the first moment of our existence, our most powerful yearning is to fulfill the original purpose of our lives, to see Him more clearly, love Him more dearly, follow Him more nearly, as the old prayer says. We are made for God, and nothing less will really satisfy us. He goes on to write, Have you ever felt baffled by your internal resistance to prayer, by the existential dread of silence, solitude, and being alone with God? By the way, you drag yourself out of bed for morning praise, shuffle off to worship with the sacramental slump of the terminally ill, endure nightly prayer with stoic resignation, knowing that this too shall pass. Beware the imposter. We are here. The vision of Van City Church is to practice the way of Jesus, to destroy the false self. A while back, I was uh, correcting my five-year-old son when he said something mean-spirited to his little sister. It turns out they do that a lot. And I remember telling him, listen, man, what you said was mean, really mean, and you are not mean. You're actually gentle and kind, and what you said to your sister was hateful, but you love your sister. And I, I believe that to be true. There are times when my son behaves in ways that are disobedient or rude or even violent or mean, but ask me what I think about my son, and I will answer without a moment's hesitation and tell you he is awesome. He's wonderful. He's creative. He's intelligent. He's bright and adventurous. He's brave. He's caring. He's sensitive. He's empathetic. He's curious. He's hilarious. He's fun. He is awesome. I love him. So listen to me. You may behave in ways that are petty or selfish or lustful or embittered, rude, passive-aggressive, anxious, critical, lazy, overbearing, self-hating, or mean, but ask God what He thinks of you, and He will tell you without hesitation that He loves you with an everlasting love, that He rejoices 
over you, delights in you with singing and dancing, that you are holy and blameless before God. You're precious in the sight of God, that you are the apple of God's eye, that you are forgiven, free from condemnation, that Jesus will not leave you or abandon you. In fact, he has canceled your debt, removed it. He remembers your sin no more. You are God's daughter. You are God's son. I didn't make any of those things up. They are lifted, all of them, directly from the scriptures. God doesn't see this other thing, this shadowy imposter, as you because it isn't you. It is a liar. And after decades of hating myself, I went through years of hard work and therapy and God doing a deep work in me, and I realized that this thing that I hated isn't me. I have allowed this shadow to eclipse me, and it isn't even real. Death to the false self. Now, now that I know him, see him for what he is, I realize he will not be silenced by simply uh, me knowing that he's there. The imposter is a hungry black hole fed by all sorts of things in my story and in the world around me. But I will not give myself over in resignation to the false self. The invitation to you, to our family, is to link arms in the uphill work of spiritual formation. We do this through teaching. We get together every week to study the scriptures and to submit our lives to what they say is true. We practice together. We come together in Van City communities, around tables, and we learn and pray and we work this out, taking on spiritual disciplines, habits together, practices, not alone, with vulnerability and accountability, bearing one another's burdens in community, all of this empowered by the Spirit of God himself. As St. Catherine said, when we are who we are called to be, we will set the world ablaze. Now, I don't read St. Catherine's promise as some kind of like rousing, rallying cry for, you know, we're going to become world leaders and take over the world. I read her to mean that we will be set free from the tyranny of selfishness and anxiousness and hurry and greed and lust, death to the false self. We will set the world ablaze by being wise and loving parents and self-sacrificial friends, and generous spouses, disciplined in our vocations, confident in our callings, gracious in our suffering. We will be humble peacemakers, people more and more freed up every day to truly love God and to love one another as ourselves. Death to the false self. May we know you, God. May we know our true selves. With that in mind, let's pray and invite God's Spirit to speak. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.